0: Welcome to this week's podcast, at Bergen Park Church from Evergreen, Colorado. We hope you enjoy this message, and if you'd like to hear any more or learn more about the church, please visit bergenparkchurch.org. Welcome to Bergen Park Church. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad I'm here. Um, Our family was away for a couple of weeks, uh, just a little vacation, but it's good to be back with you guys. I wanted to mention that... um, One of our core values here at Bergen Park Church is missions. Uh, We put a lot of weight in uh, global and local missions. In fact, my wife and I were homegrown missionaries from this church, raised up and sent uh, for just over a decade to the mission field in France, where we planted a church. We're back home now. But um, over the last few weeks, actually the last couple of months, you've noticed we've put a lot of emphasis on the different Uh, Missions that are supported by Bergen Park Church. And I just want to remind you, keep praying for those ministries, those local and global ministries. We have a table set up out in the lobby, so you're welcome to stop by there if you want more information about some of these ministries that we support here at Bergen Park Church, that you know how how to pray for these missions and how to support them. I um, also wanted to remind you that we have the Good Friday service coming up here in a couple of weeks, so you're welcome to come out for that and participate. So, that'll be uh, Friday the 15th of April. You know, around this time of year, um, I start getting kind of that cabin fever feeling a little bit. I don't know if you're that way as well. I know Colorado is beautiful year-round, there are plenty of outdoor activities to do, but I really like the summer kinds of sports. Uh, just getting out in the mountains, in the high country, uh, climbing, uh, backpacking, climbing 14ers, that kind of thing. I was thinking this week a little bit about rock climbing. Now, I am not a very good rock climber, but I have a great appreciation for people who do know the sport well, people who know how to climb well. Now, there are a lot of different factors that go into determining the difficulty of a climb, Including the distance between the hand and footholds, uh, the amount of material to hold onto, uh, things like that, um, so those who know how to climb well it 's amazing to watch people just use like a, a slight crack in a rock or a wall and find their way up uh, up the side of that cliff up the side of that mountain. Now, there was a famous rock climber named uh, Alan Robert, who maybe he was more infamous than famous, but he was known for climbing. Uh, skyscrapers and towers all over the world. He climbed the uh, Sears Tower in Chicago, he climbed the the Opera House in Sydney, he climbed the Petronas Towers in Malaysia, the New York Times Tower, he climbed all of these, these towers, dozens, hundreds of towers. But even the best rock climbers, even the best climbers in the world need something to grip onto. It's impossible to climb a sheer, smooth surface, right? So, so I was thinking about that this week, it got me thinking a little bit here about Ephesians 4. Do not give the devil a foothold, right? Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, the ESV, the version we're going to read from this morning, says do not give the devil an opportunity. But There's the same idea in the Greek. Do not give the devil something to hold on to in your life. Don't let him get his foot in the door. Don't give him an opportunity in your life. See, the devil wants to climb up into our lives, right? He wants to be a part of our lives. He wants to get his foot in the door. And there are things we can do that either help facilitate the activity of the devil in our lives or things we can do that shut it down, right? And we want to shut that down. Paul talks about that here in Ephesians 4. He presents the idea of a a foothold really in the context of anger. In your anger, do not sin. Do not give the devil a foothold. So that's the idea, the context is that of anger, but I think what's important here is that we understand that there are a lot of different areas in life where we can give the devil an opportunity, where we can give the devil a foothold in our lives. And Paul in Ephesians 4 is helping us identify those areas so that we can resist the devil, resist Satan climbing into our life, getting into our life. So, Paul is talking here a lot about the honest life. How do we live an honest life before the Lord? And you see, the renewed spirit or the transformed life of the Christian is characterized by honesty before God, when all is laid bare, when we are no longer able to hide from the face of God. See, God sees our heart. He knows our mind. He knows our sin. And in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 through 32 we read that there are really three general areas in our lives where we need to resist the devil's grasp or foothold. We need to resist giving him a foothold in our life. And those three areas are honest speech, honest anger, and honest action. And we're going to take a look at those three things this morning. So let's go to Ephesians 4, and we're going to look at verses 25 through 32. Therefore... Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for this time that we can gather together this morning. To study, to read, to ponder what you have revealed to us. And we ask, Lord, that you would guide this study this morning. Give us wisdom, insight into this text. Grow us and build us up in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I just want to briefly reiterate the importance of always looking at a text in its context, okay? Maybe you've heard theologians or or, or New Testament scholars, pastors talk about this idea that a text outside of its context is a pretext, okay? We want to be careful with the context we're looking at. And, And the context of this passage really is one of transformation, Okay, transformation. So Paul has laid out a very careful analysis of transformation by showing us the God who transforms us. Paul speaks of the diametric opposition of the pre- and post-Christian life, the pre- and post-regenerated life. And he exhorts us to live as transformed people. Now, the word therefore in verse 25 is very important here. And you want to pay attention when you're reading Scripture to transitional words like that. Because what what it's doing is helping us situate what we're reading in context or in light of what came in the previous section. Okay? So the word therefore, we're going to take a look at that. This marks really a logical consequence stemming from the prior instruction that Paul gave. Okay? So Paul has just told the Ephesians to put off the old self and to be clothed with the new self. And Greg talked about this last week, if you were here for that message, this idea of the old self and the new self. And what he had to say about that was was quite important, because we can have a tendency to want to look back at that pre-Christian, pre-sanctified life and be drawn back into those habits, drawn back into those activities. But here, Paul is urging us, live a transformed life, live a life consistent with the transformation that has taken place in you. The old is gone, the new is here. So, we can trace that reasoning, this reasoning of transformation back even further. It's not just chapter 4. We need to go back to chapter 3. We need to go back to chapter 2. As we've seen over the weeks, the God who transforms, this is the God who has brought us out of the grave, right? We saw that in chapter 2 of Ephesians. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, but now you are alive in Christ, of transformation, death to life. Or we saw also this language of of being naturalized into the people of God, right? You were once foreigners, you were once estranged from God, but now you have been brought in to the people of God, you've been naturalized into God's people. So this is the broader context, So the idea here, what Paul's getting at is you are no longer dead, so why are you still wearing your grave clothes, right? Why are you still dressed up like a lurid, cadaverous mummy? Why are you wearing these these grave clothes? You're alive. So take off the grave clothes, take a shower, get rid of the stench of death, spray on some, I don't know, some Axe body spray or whatever, look alive, right? Be alive, You're no longer a foreigner. You're no longer a stranger. So why do you look like you just got off the plane? Why do you look like you just wandered out of the jungle? Right? You've been naturalized into Christ, into his people. So learn Christ's language. Learn Christ's culture. Start looking like you belong with Jesus. You've taken off the old. You've put on the new. Therefore... And that's what brings us to verse 25. Therefore. So therefore, stop lying to yourself and live an honest life before God. Now, as I mentioned previously, these final verses of Ephesians chapter 4 center on honest speech, honest anger, and honest action, honest behavior. So think about how often we try to lie to ourselves how often we lie to others, how often we attempt even to lie to God, right? We do this at times. Um, We need to be careful with this. It's funny the stories we tell ourselves to justify ourselves to ourselves. I was reading recently about a school teacher in New York who fabricated a a lie, a story of the death of her daughter so that she could have two extra weeks of, of vacation. She had a death certificate forged, and when she was caught with the forged death certificate, she had a second death certificate forged to try to cover up the first one, and the lies got deeper and deeper until it was discovered that she'd actually purchased her airfare for the alleged funeral three weeks prior to the date of the supposed sudden and unexpected death, right? The stuff just didn't add up. Now, we might think this person a great fool for attempting such a lie, but how often do we lie to ourselves? How often do we live in dishonesty before the Lord? We can lie to ourselves. We can lie to others. We cannot lie to God. We cannot hide from God. Where can we go to escape Him? Right In in Psalm 139, David asks that very question, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will uphold me. God is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient. He sees all, he knows all. We can't hide from God. God knows what is in us, and honestly, what comes out of us is really just proof of what's in the heart, right out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, It's better to stand in honesty before the Lord. So where do we begin? Well, again, we begin with verse 25, honest speech. So having put away falsehood, each one must speak truthfully to his neighbor. We speak truthfully because we follow a God who is the truth, right? He's the source of truth. Now, the old self followed the world, the flesh, the devil, as we saw in chapter 2. And the devil is the father of lies, Jesus talks about this in John chapter 8, verse 44. Satan is the father of lies. He is a liar, a liar from the beginning. Now, the new and regenerated self, the self that walks with Jesus Christ, walks in the truth of who God is. John fourteen six. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the source of truth. Now, truth is a life-giving thing. Right? Understand that it's not always easy to speak the truth. It's not always easy to hear the truth spoken. It's not easy to walk in the truth. Truth can mean a lot of different things. Some truths are more relevant than others to us. There's a lot we can say about truth. You know, truth can be a very shocking thing at times. I read an interesting kind of shocking fact this week. I learned that there are 1.5 trillion microbes, viruses, bacteria, and fungi living on and in the human body. That's kind of terrifying and gross, right? It's a shocking truth. Truth can be offensive at times. We've all probably been offended By truth, here's an offensive truth, if you want to hear one. Gender is not a social construct, but is rooted in God-given biological differences between men and women. Try saying that out in public and getting away with it. Truth can be relieving at times when that biopsy comes back and the results are in your favor. It was a benign tumor, that sort of thing. Truth can be a relief. Truth can be life-saving, a fact like dial 911 in the event of an emergency. Truth can save your life. Truth can be trivial, useless to us. Um, an octopus has three hearts. Who cares, right? Unless you're a marine biologist, I don't want to degrade any of that. But uh, there are a lot of truths, a lot of facts out there that just don't really necessarily matter to us in the moment. There are all kinds of truths. But there are essential truths that every Christian should live in, Right? Truths about God, truths about human beings. And in the body of Christ, we're called to live honest lives before one another. And this means speaking truthfully into each other's lives. It means offering sometimes corrective feedback, feedback that edifies, that helps our brothers and sisters grow, instead of letting them get away with behaviors or habits that will leave them spiritually stagnant. This is why we put a lot of emphasis here on on small groups. Uh, The Table Connections uh, ministry, uh, Bible studies, get involved, get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ, study the Word with them, pray with them, have some accountability. This is important stuff. So truth means developing relationships in which it's possible to call out sin, in which we welcome the correction and the admonishment of others. It means not hiding behind an image we wish to project or pretending that we are something or not. It means maybe evaluating how much of our Facebook posting is a lie we've created to impress people who are also lying to impress us, right? It means evaluating whether those Instagram photos are really a, a, a true representation of who we are. It means that when we fast, when we pray, When we worship, when we engage in the activities of the church, we ask ourselves, are we doing this for God or for the benefit of our own pretensions of high spiritual aptitude for the benefit of others? See, speaking truthfully is not about walking on eggshells. It's not about being nice. But it is about loving our brother and sister in Christ. It's about building up the body of Christ, as we see in verse 29. So there's some parallel here between verse 25 and, and verse 29, building up the body. So true speech is edifying. It doesn't falsely build people up, but is able to constructively help people develop in their faith. Speaking truthfully means knowing theological truth about God so that we can live truthfully in worship of God. Right? I've talked about this before. Theology for doxology. Know God so that you can worship God And Jesus said in John 4 that true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. So truth is that which corresponds to reality. And ultimate reality is God himself. So are we real before God? Are we standing in honesty before God? Are we lying to ourselves? Are we giving the devil a foothold in our lives? So the first thing we see, again, is honest speech. But the second thing we see in this passage is honest anger. God calls us to honest anger. That is anger about the right things for the right reasons. So look at verse 26. Verse 26 says that in our anger we must not sin. In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Now how is this possible? Anger is really never praised as a good thing in Scripture. Now, we see examples of anger in Scripture, people expressing anger in Scripture. It happens. It's a part of our life. But we have to be very, very careful with anger. I want you to fast forward. Keep your your, your eyes on verse 26, but fast forward a little bit to verse 31 as well. Try to do some comparison here between these two passages. It's, it's quite interesting what Paul does, because first he says in verse 26, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Well, oh, sorry, in verse 26, um, be angry but do not sin. But then in verse 31, get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. So what is he really trying to tell us here? Can we be angry or, or not? What, what's the point? I think the idea is that anger is at least a dangerous thing, a dangerous thing to live in, if not a sinful thing. It's almost like Paul is saying, just to use a metaphor here, if you really have to venture out in the blizzard, do so. But don't freeze to death. Don't get lost. In fact, don't even go out in the blizzard. Stay home. That's kind of the the idea we're getting here. Paul's telling us that anger is not always a sin, but it can very easily become a sin. So be Careful. Tread carefully. We want to avoid letting sin linger in our lives. That's the idea behind do not let the sun go down on your your anger. Deal with it. Deal with it. Now, there's a fine line between righteous wrath and unrighteous wrath. We have to acknowledge that as humans, we're not very good at walking that line. Now, God in his perfection is able to walk that line. We are not. See, God's anger is righteous. It's always righteous because God is without sin. When his love is shunned, when his holiness is offended, his response is wrath. We see this in the Bible. In the Old Testament, the New Testament, we see it all over. When his, his love is shunned, his, his, his holiness offended, his response is wrath Now, understand that wrath is not an attribute of God. When we talk about attributes, we're talking about omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, uh, holiness, righteousness, love, grace, mercy, those kinds of things. Those are attributes of God. Wrath is not an attribute of God. It's actually just an appropriate divine response to sin and injustice in the world. So God's ire burns against evil and against offenses to his perfections. And our anger over sin, our anger over injustices should be modeled after God's anger. Again, we need to be very careful with anger. Now, we like to think that our anger is justified. We like to talk about righteous wrath. We can use that as an excuse sometimes. We like to think that when our spouse leaves a sink full of dirty dishes for us to do after a long day of work, thus offending our self-righteousness and pretensions of holiness, we are right to exact our divinely ordained vengeance upon them, calling down the plagues of Egypt in divine, furious retribution or that sort of thing. We're justified. It's righteous wrath when our children are bickering and behaving like godless little savages right? We've all been there and seen that. Surely we are justified in erupting into a divinely appointed berserker rage, right? We've been there when other drivers cut us off in traffic, right? They are most certainly deserving of our most obscene gesticulations, right? Righteous wrath. I mean, we tell ourselves that story, right? Righteous Wrath, but have we ever stopped to think that our offenses against God are far worse in magnitude than others' offenses against us? We have sinned against a holy God. We've offended a perfect God. The worst anyone has done to us is offended an imperfect sinner. And yet God is slow to anger and abounding in love. We would do well to learn from him. When we act in anger, we're walking on thin ice. God calls us to greater honesty about the things that anger us. Perhaps we need to begin with anger over our own sin. That's a good place to start. Look inward. Be honest about your anger. But there's a third area in which we're called to honesty, and that is honest action. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his hands that he may have something to share with those in need. So look at the next verse. Look at verse 27, 28 as we get into that. Um, Yeah, verse 28 in particular. Now, how do we steal? How do we steal? Most of us have never robbed a bank or embezzled funds or eaten our co-workers' lunch out of the refrigerator at work or that sort of thing. But are we stealing from God and from the resources He has given us by His grace? Now, have we stolen glory? for ourselves, glory that belongs to God? Have we misused the time God has given us? Have we wasted the gifting that God has gifted us with, gifting that should be a blessing to those around us? How have we stolen from God? So your ministry in this church, your ministry in life, in the community, these things do not belong to you. It belongs to God, right? Elders, teachers... The people God has entrusted into your care, they don't belong to you. They belong to God. Let's not steal glory for ourselves. Parents, your children are fundamentally better off in the hands of God than in your hands. They belong to God. Ministry leaders, those of you involved in various ministries, if your ministry experiences growth, through true spiritual depth and the transformation of lives, then praise God to whom that ministry ultimately belongs. See, when we become obsessed with producing results, we are in danger of taking from God. We are in danger of stealing from Him in a way that which belongs to Him alone. We end up living dishonestly, giving the devil a foothold, grieving the Holy Spirit of God with whom we are sealed for the day of redemption We become more honest about who we are when we become more honest with who God is. If we want to know ourselves rightly, we need to know God rightly. If we want to know ourselves rightly, we've got to start with God. Jesus is the truth. He speaks the truth. He embodies the truth. He knows the truth about who you are and what you have done, and he died in your place so that you might walk in the truth of who he is and what he has done. And so I want to encourage us this morning, if you want to live an honest life, that life begins by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've not done that, put your faith in Jesus Christ so we really begin to live, not just the Christian life, we really begin to live in general when we are willing to acknowledge before God what He already knows about us. He knows who we are. Are we willing to confess? Are we willing to come before him and receive from him? See, if we confess our sins, we read in scripture, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen. Now, we're going to take some time to celebrate communion this morning, as we do um, weekly here. Go ahead and grab the communion elements if you have not yet done so. There are a couple of tables up here in the front, and then, uh, of course, some communion elements in the back as well. Um, so I, I want to turn to actually to uh, the book of First Corinthians this morning. Just read a passage to help us reflect on the nature of communion. So c- communion is a time for us to, to to really absorb what we've learned from God's word, to reflect on our condition, uh, to praise our God and Savior to confess our sin before him, and to receive from him. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself so as i said this is a time for us to reflect on our condition on who we are before god we need to remember we are great sinners but god is a very gracious and loving god god redeems his people he loves his people And if you have received that gift of God's grace, then you are welcome to participate in communion to celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for you, to say yes, essentially, to Jesus. So let's take the communion together. Jesus took the bread and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then he took the cup and said, this is the blood of the covenant, my blood shed on the cross for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your grace, for your mercy, for the transformation that has taken place. That we've been called from death to life that you are working on us, Lord, sanctifying us. And so we ask, Lord, would you help us to be honest before you, honest with ourselves, honest with those around us, honest with you, to confess our sin. Lord, we know we have sinned. We have offended your perfections. We have offended your holiness. We thank you, Lord, that you are God of grace who receives us because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross who laid down his life in our place. Lord, you have welcomed us into your kingdom. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.